Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Richard with you here with another edition of Smart Arts coming to you as ever from the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. Now on the program today, ooh, so much to talk about. The major summer festival circuit is launching. So Adelaide Festival launched on Tuesday, Perth Festival launched on Wednesday, Sydney Festival launches today. So I'm going to catch up with Ruth McKenzie, the Artistic Director of the Adelaide Festival, to find out what's in store for culture vultures and keen cultural tourists looking forward to dashing interstate for a a fix of international and national art and culture. So, uh, yeah, the festival runs from the 1st to the 17th of March, so lots to chat about in terms of Ruth's inaugural full program. Australia's preeminent arts festival, and sorry, Rising, sorry, Brisbane Festival, uh, Dark Mofo and more, but Adelaide Festival really does seem to be the pinnacle arts festival in Australia, but also recognised internationally as well. I'm joined on the line by Ruth McKenzie, CBE, the Artistic Director of Adelaide Festival, who just on Tuesday launched her full first festival program together with Chief Executive Kath Mainland, CBE. Ruth, a warm welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. Now, uh, to begin with, I wanted to ask, given that the personality of every artistic director helps shape the festival. We see something perhaps of you and your passions and loves reflected in the program. What do you bring to the Adelaide Festival that is unique that other festival directors have not bought in the past or could not bring because they're simply not you? Gosh, that's such a tough question. But I guess, I mean, I guess I really don't think that the preeminent uh, festival in Adelaide in the Southern Hemisphere, some would say, you know, in the Premier League for World Festivals. I don't think it's about Ruth McKenzie. Um, And for me, it's about uh, my job is to support incredible artists to take risks so that all of us audiences can go on extraordinary adventures with the artists. And you're going to see in this program, I mean, there are a lot of artists great names from around the world, many I've worked with before, but they're also new artists that I've only met since I started in the job. And they're all, they're all coming with projects that help them and us, you know, explore the complications of life today, but explore for the joy and for fun as well as for the dark and difficult things that we have to face. That's always been what artists do. But for me, it's about risk and adventure. It's not about Ruth McKenzie. Well, that notion of risk and adventure is certainly one of the great... Uh, appeals to any festival program. Uh, I remember years ago seeing Roman tragedies at Adelaide Festival, for example. And outside... Of... by the way, by the Holland Festival, which I was then in charge of. Well, well One thank of the you. best shows in the world, can I just say. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, it was... And also the kind of show that I would only go to at a festival, because if you had said to me at any other time of the year, do you want to come and see an epic durational mashup of shows Shakespeare that runs for multiple hours and is performed in a foreign language, I would have gone, no. But at a festival, you dive into that experience. Why do you think that is? Why? What is it about festivals that encourages audiences to take artistic risks as well as the artists themselves? Well, I think, I mean, they've always been something. I mean, it comes, it's got ancient roots, of course, and it's always about a community celebration or a community event. It's about partly you go because you're, you, you're given courage by the fact you won't be alone. Don't you think that in a festival, there's all of you collectively experiencing things? And that's a great release. And one of the, I mean, one of the chances that this festival will offer is not only for you to come and see great artists, but also for you to develop your own creative skills only if you want to. You know, who can be a right, an artist? Who has the rights to be an artist? That's something that 
we're offering you the chance to see how far you want to go down that road. Now, one of the me- the reasons I mentioned Roman tragedies is because you've programmed a work by the Melbourne collective PonyCam, an opportunity for audiences outside of Melbourne to see this young, independent, exciting company. Uh, it's a work that encourages audiences and the artists themselves to reflect on shows they've seen that have left a mark on them creatively. Exactly right. Exactly right. Some of which, of course are shows that PonyCam, members of PonyCam, saw at the Adelaide Festival. I mean, they explained to me that when they were young and poor, I mean, they're still young, they're 27 years old, uh, they used to drive overnight. They used to drive from Melbourne, see the show, and then sleep in the car, poor things. Um, and some of the shows that they cite as being the, the life-changing theatre experiences that they have had are, in fact, Adelaide Festival shows. But they also ask the audience exactly to propose your own what is the moment, what is the show that you saw that made you think differently, that has never left you? They are absolutely marvellous, can I say? Well done, Melbourne. Um, I'm so excited to have found them. Um, and I think that audiences are going to adore them in Adelaide. Now, they are one example of a younger local company being given the opportunity to spread their wings on an international festival stage, which will bring them to much greater attention. You've also programmed some legendary names in the world of the arts, international guests, uh, Canadian author Robert Lepage, for example, with a uh, a centrepiece opera that was announced some time ago. But Laurie Anderson is coming to the festival and the choreographer Akram Khan, whose work is so beautifully potent and powerful, is also going to be appearing at the festival. That's exactly right. And we've got two former artistic directors of the Adelaide Festival. We've got Stephen Page opening the festival with a world premiere commission on the beach at Glenelg, starring, I mean, it's about a whale, um, and about more broadly the importance of Wales and country in our past and our present. And we've got Barry Kosky, the favourite former artistic director of the Adelaide Festival, coming back, and this time coming back with the Berliner Ensemble and the Threatening Opera. So this is pure Barry magic, political, sexy, funny, fierce, incredibly well done, the Threatening Opera. I honestly book early to avoid disappointment on that one. Now, one of the things that struck me about the launch of the 2024 Adelaide Festival program, Ruth, is the fact that you have co-credited Chief Executive Kath Mainland saying this is our first festival. That struck me as unusual. It's often the artistic director takes the limelight, the the chief executive who does the, the business side of things is often left in the wings or in the shadows. Tell me about well, crediting Kath in that regard, because that is different in, for festival culture in many ways. Well, it's normal for me, um, because it is our both our first festivals. I mean, it's factually true. But I would say, actually, more broadly, uh, one of the biggest risks, I guess, I'm taking as an artistic director is the, is the delegation of a lot of my artistic direction either to artists or indeed to communities. So, you know, right now is your last chance, anyone who's listening, it's your last chance to join in Create for Adelaide. You can send us an artwork about one of the climate emergencies, extinction of plant and animals, floods and fires and extremities of weather or air and water pollution. You can send it before the 31st of October and you have a chance to be in the Adelaide Festival. Send it to... Create for Adelaide, that's one word, and four is a number, createforadelaide.au. But I can't tell you if you'll be at the festival or not, because it's going to be the young people of South Australia who vote for the artworks that they want to see in the festival. So I'm happy to tell you I've no idea what the exhibition will be like. Um, Just as with Marina Abramovich and her her group of younger long-durational performance artist, Marina Abramovich, one of the giants of the world. Um, She has redefined risk over and over again. I haven't a clue what they're going to do, and it's a great pleasure for me. So I feel that cultural democracy and artistic direction are trying to merge a bit at points. But don't worry. I mean, there are plenty of shows where I do know exactly what they're going to do (laughs) because they've made them. But the more exciting ones, perhaps, 
are the ones that are being made right now, like Jacob Bowen, another Melbourne. He's, he's owned by Melbourne and by Adelaide. We fight over him. Um, but he's making his largest stage show on Her Majesty's Theatre. He's been working on this on York Peninsula, on country, with elders, with community for four years. But the rehearsals only start uh, in about a month's time. So I don't know what we're going to see. I've had the privilege of being on country with the team, the creative team and the elders. I've had the privilege of being in, in the studio and watching Jacob and his beautiful work. But, you know, we're a long way from being able to tell you what are the greatest moments and what's the journey. The journey's still being created right now. One of the other things that, for me, as a, uh, somebody who... Uh, adores the opportunity to travel interstate and to see work that I would never see otherwise because it may never tour to Melbourne or in a festival context I may have to wait at least two or three years uh, is to see work by local companies and I know that uh, Adelaide Festival uh, in 2024 for example is presenting work by some significant Adelaide companies so Restless Dance Theatre being a great example. Restless Dance Theatre being a world-class example. By the way, I'm, I've, I've banned the word local. Um, every artist that we have in the festival is of international quality, and that's a serious point. So there's no two-tier um, um, quality in this festival. There are world-class people who come from Melbourne or from Adelaide or from Paris or from London or from New York or from... Uh, Bamako, um, that's all we have is world-class artists. And Michelle Ryan and Restless Dance Company, I mean, they are, they are world-class. They tour the whole time. Their work is incredible. And this time they are making a new piece, again, a world premiere, which looks at the things that perhaps people with disabilities aren't encouraged to share and talk about. Um, so romance, love, sex, above all, sex, um, and we've got two pieces in the festival where artists with disabilities are leading and sharing. Um, we've got Private View, Restless's world premiere, and we've also got Yucky, uh, which is a group show by artists with disabilities that are looking again at, you know, that what are the barriers, the personal and the political barriers that face them as artists and them as people. Uh, and this is an incredibly important strand of work. But I think, as Michelle said at our launch, the thing about Restless is that they're brilliant. They're brilliant. Don't come expecting that just because there are artists with disabilities, that means that their standards are lower. It doesn't. It means they're world-class in this case. I wholeheartedly agree. I've seen several Restless productions over the years and they are outstanding. One of the other great opportunities of a festival like Adelaide Festival, Ruth, is to see and to be to have the opportunity perhaps to be able to boast in 10 or 20 years' time, oh, yes, I saw them when. Uh, in this instance, you've selected a wordless work from an Albanian theatre maker that is being presented by the National Theatre of Greece, and it's already got me intrigued. That's excellent, and that's... And that, I mean, of course, Adelaide has always done that, and actually, when, you know, everyone in Adelaide boasts about how they saw Robert Lepage before he was famous, um, and brilliantly, we've kept inviting him, and he'll be back, as you've said. But so uh, Mario Benucci is 24 years old, and this piece... Um, which showed at a festival in Athens, and my colleague who looks after talent hunting in the Northern Hemisphere, Vauta, went to see it. Um, it's, I mean, it's been a sensation in Europe, this show. Goodbye, Lindita. It's, 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 lit, it's lit by Robert Wilson meets Vermeer. It's got, it's got an aesthetic that is so grown up and so extraordinarily lovely. It's got no words, but you know exactly what's going on. Um, it follows a family through the life of a family, you know, the good moments, the bad moments. Um, I can't recommend it too strongly, but they're saying in Europe that he'll be the next Romeo Castellucci. And he's not like Romeo Castellucci, but I understand he's got, he's got both a beauty and a maturity and a disruptive element to him that I think means that if you come, you will certainly be boasting about having seen him 10 years before he was famous. Um, and that is part of the festival, isn't it? I mean, that, as you said, that's, we've got the same thing with Pony Camp and with Thomas Weatherall. I mean, Thomas Weatherall, he just turned 23. His first play, Blue, which was at the Sydney Festival over the, earlier this year. Again, it's got a maturity uh, 
and a depth to it. I've spent my life reading first plays. I start my first job was at the Royal Court Theatre in London reading plays. I tell you, it's once every 40 years you read a first play like this. And this is what he can do when he's 23. Wait till he's 45. Adelaide Festival is running from the 1st until the 17th of March. We've barely scratched the surface of the program. Before we wrap up, Ruth, I should ask you to speak to some of the visual arts elements of the program as well. Yes, indeed. Um, Well, we've talked about Yucky uh, and we've talked briefly about Create for Adelaide. I should say it's the biennial, um, which, of course, is the oldest biennial. It's only Australian artists and this year it's curated by Jose de Silva, who is a fantastic curator. It's called Inner Sanctum, and it's delving into places where the artists and we, the audience, feel safe. So it's thoughtful, it's humble listening work from Jose. I love his, the way he curates, actually. Um, You know, it's not about him. it's It's about the artists coming together to take us to interesting new places, and also across art forms, which is great. So... Adelaide Chamber Singers are doing a new work within the biennial, working with Kate Llewellyn, the great artist, the great poet, South Australian poet. Um, so I really, really, I really recommend the biennial. It's free as well. All of the exhibitions are free. Uh, and also for those that are travelling, try and stop at Border Town because we're working with Country Arts and there's a group show at Border Town called Harbinger's Care or Catastrophe, one of quite a few pieces that are uh, focusing on climate action. And another Melbourne tip, we've got, I'm so thrilled, Emma Roberts and Ben Joseph Andrews and their show, Gondwana. And this is an immersive experience that, that fast-tracks you through the degradation, thanks to human action, of tropical rainforest. Um, and we're doing a 48-hour immersive experience. You don't, don't panic. You don't have to stay for 48 hours, but you can if you wish, <laughs> uh, with VR spectacles and, most importantly, a bar. For full details about the 2024 Adelaide Festival, the 39th Adelaide Festival, go to www.adelaidefestival.com.au. The festival is running from the 1st until the 17th of March with a range of ticketed and free events, free events including Adelaide Writers' Week. Uh, There is so much to experience and explore. I highly recommend jumping online, booking some tickets, booking flights and accommodation and immersing yourself in the Adelaide Festival in March next year. Ruth McKenzie is the Artistic Director of Adelaide Festival and Ruth, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Thanks for joining us at Triple R. And see you all all in March in Adelaide. Thank you. Triple R. Uh, On the contemporary dance front, I'm going to be catching up with Thomas E. S. Kelly, the artistic director and co-founder of First Nations dance company Carol uh, Carol Projects to talk about their show Where Dingo, which is on from the 1st until the 5th of November at Arts House, North Melbourne Town Hall. And a little bit later on in the show... I'll be catching up with choreographer Stephanie Lake from Stephanie Lake Company to talk about the return season of Manifesto at Art Centre Melbourne, which I saw last night. It's an exhilarating show. Uh, My next guest has just joined us in the studio. Thomas E. S. Kelly is the artistic director and co-founder of Curral Projects, Queensland's premier First Peoples dance company. Um... Thomas, welcome back to Melbourne. It's been a while since you and I caught up. It has been, and it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. You're here to chat about a show with the intriguing title of Where Dingo. Yeah. Now, I have seen Howling 3, The Marsupials. Um, (laughs) Not a great horror film by any stretch of the imagination. Not that dingoes are marsupials. But uh, talk to us about the, the, the... I guess the creative seed for this show. Yeah. So, well, if I give you the creative seed was uh, way back in in 2017, I was doing a residency for an idea of a new work with my my girlfriend at the time, but is now my wife and is also co-founder of the company, Tari Sansbury, who's a Praganangeri Narangangana woman. We were up at Dance North doing one of their um, arts residency in the tropics um, programs, and we were exploring a whole other idea. And then on the second last day, 
come across a, 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 um, a like a forum, a Shapeshifters Anonymous forum of people talking about their weekend exploits as cats and as birds and um, we found it a little bit hilarious. It was like we, we, we had a good laugh at it and then we had this moment of, of thinking, hold on, why is it funny that they are spending time as cats or birds when as First Nations people we are shapeshifters? There's nothing humorous about our stories and, and us being descendants of shapeshifters. It's, it is who we are as is most First Nations and other, you know, um, cultures around the world, if you think of like Greek mythology and all that type of stuff as well. So we kind of ex- started exploring the idea of, of show. And so a two-week residency in the last two days, I, I threw out everything before and we started making a new show. <laughs> and it just kind of, it went down this journey of the the hilariousness of looking at it in a in a non-Indigenous context of the world today, if someone was to say that they were a shapeshifter, you'd probably think they're crazy. Um, also looking at it from a cultural perspective about our stories of us turning into animals but us turning into the landscape. And then also thinking about the struggles that these people must be having as shapeshifters. Imagine what it would be like if I was to wake up on the weekend and, and my body changed into a cat. Like, Who could you really tell? Who would you really be having those conversations with? You know, you couldn't go to the doctors. You're probably going to start getting experimented on and no one will see you again. And so we decided to make the show still in a fun and playful because it's an interesting topic of light about it uh, to create a shapeshifter support group. And so everyone comes to the Shapeshifters support group and we're, we're guided through. There's a couple of special guests that are sharing their shifting stories. And that's kind of where the seed began. And then then we're layering on the context. Then I was starting to have these kind of parallels of shapeshifting with myself as a, as a six foot three person of color who's visibly a person of color as well. And how I shapeshift on a daily basis depending on where I am and, and who I'm walking past. And, you know, there's, you know, a, a and group. Which culture you're moving through Which at a particular time, or yeah. whether the cops are driving past, exactly. Or, yeah. Like I, I will, I won't cross the street if there's police around without a, without the green man, or my hand always, both hands always end up on the wheel. And you know, I've 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 got my stories of walking down, you know, um, in in Sydney, going to Marrickville just to go get breakfast because it was a beautiful day, and having a, a a police officer stop and question me. And by the end of a forty five minute interrogation, there was three vehicles and eight police officers standing around me, and I'm just kind of like. It was a beautiful day and I thought I'd go get breakfast and of course someone was causing a, a, a ruckus at the pub, which I hadn't been to in months. And it's, you know, so that, that kind of, and, and actually funnily enough, but well, not funny at all, but, you know, I had another, you know, incident that happened to me on the weekend, just um, being inside the shopping center. And it was kind of, it's kind of so bizarre that it happens, but that's that's then this other parallel and, and people's, um, the other and the other element is people holding space. Like it's First Nations people speaking for First Nations people. You know, other people not needing to hold. So this black fishing, black cladding kind of conversation comes into it as well. One of the things that also makes me think of is the contemporary paranoia from conservatives about uh, there's the the myth that oh my god the school had to get kitty litter uh, uh, bought especially because a child is identifying as a cat and it gets blown up by tabloid media and there's no truth to it but it, it seems so easy for some people to want to believe uh, that identity politics is political correctness has gone too far all of that kind of thing the flip side of that uh, to take us back as you say the the ancient stories told by mob about kind of people turning into a bird, turning into a dingo, turning into a mountain range, for example, as well. These are some of the oldest stories in the world and should be told and should be explored. We'll leave the cat kitty litter identifying stuff <laughs> for the, the tabloid newspapers where it belongs. But, yeah, these these that notion of being a contemporary custodian of the oldest living stories in the world is for me as a as a middle-aged white fella is a fascinating one to to see explored artistically and culturally no absolutely and and you know i mean we we are the people like our stories is about who we are in this place in this time and it's our kinship to country and to the land you know it's the whole the whole reason that you hear First Nations people f- fighting so much for our rights and for our and, our and and our land and our country, you know that 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 we're still here because 
our stories embed us into the land. Like the mountain ranges isn't just some story of a guy who became a mountain range. Like that's our ancestor. That's our kin. That's who we come from. You know, in up on um, so my people, I'm I'm part of the Minimal Yugambeh people, um, some Inuit people around the Yugambeh language region of the wider Bundjalung nation up on, uh, you know, um, Gold Coast and Tweed Heads area. And, um, you know, we, there's, there's, there's the headland there that's, that's the, you know, the first, the eldest brother of our people's first story and that the stories that we should, we all descended from him. So it's not just Jabrin that we're walking over. We're not just walking over the headland to get a good spot of the surf. You know, that's that's our kinship. That's who we are and our connection. And and so this kind of bringing those stories into about like respecting of people and respecting of country. I um, I've just this. It's a story for everybody as well. Like we have this big, a bunch of people in my community have this kind of thought process of like, if you live here, if this is if this is where you call home now you're a part of the song lines of this land and you're just as responsible for its continuation as we are. We'll take the lead as the original custodians, but we're all a part of it. And I, d- I finished reading um, Stan Grant's book, the, the Queen is Dead, and um, he has a quote there from his father, Stan Grant Sr., who's saying like, because he wanted everyone to learn Radri language. And he's like, why do you want everyone, Indigenous and non-Indigenous? And he goes, it's not about who you are, it's about where you are. And so... Uh, sharing these stories about country and about this place and the kinship and the continuing line to respect it is essentially it does become for everybody if you if you look at it in the right way and you know we'll take lead because it's you know we're the people of the stories but it's it's this the bringing that into the space for us all but we do it in in a fun way there's a lot of humor there's um there's a few little twists and turns. I, I, I've definitely played with it. The audience is, um, you're all encouraged. You're all actually a part of the show as well, FYI, for everyone coming. <laughs> you are encouraged to come dressed as your chosen shifted animal. Um, so when we have, we've performed this once before and we had people come in full bear suits, as peacock suits, some people with full face paints and ears or the clothing choices is animal print. So you have your choice to come as your chosen animal because it's not a, you're not watching a support group. You are, you are the support group. We are all shifters coming into this space. So for anyone who's feeling like they're looking for a shifted, a safe shifting space to come to, this is the, this is the place where Dingo. Now, Where Dingo is happening at Arts House at North Melbourne Town Hall from the 1st until the 5th of November. Talk to us, Thomas, about some of the other artistic collaborators and dancers that you're working with on the project. Yeah, so it's it's actually in, it's very interesting this, this, this season of this show because um, it's been a while since we premiered it. We did it in 21, and as I was mentioning to you before, um, COVID as everyone's thing. And um, so finally really excited to be bringing it down here to Nam and, and doing it at Arts House, who's been on the project since before it premiered. It's, it's, it's been a long time coming. And I, I've got my – this is a, um, a, a very – awesome collaboration with my offstage collaborators where we're, we're teaming up again like my sound design with Samuel Pankhurst my costumes with Celine Heiken, uh, um, uh, Celine Cochran who's uh, got some pretty awesome costumes happening there like we're talking shapeshifters and we're becoming animals there's some cool things in this show with, from her costumes and and um, you know I wrote it and directed it but I had dramaturgy from the awesome Isaac Drandich who's who's doing a lot of awesome stuff. Isaac just directed the um, the visitors for the Victorian Opera here at the outset. Like, so Isaac was the dramaturg me for this work. And then uh, and then on stage, my collaborators are Benjamin Mazin, who's, be, Mazin, who's been in a couple of my works. And I also had um, Grayson Millwood, who is one half of the director of, um, well, actually, I think they're a director at a five now, of The Farm with Gavin Webber, who's just incredible to have his experience come on in the creation of the work and then my wife and and and, and partner of the shows and the company Tari was there in the original and we, we created also this thing I called the outside eye collective so I had um, instead of having like one like mentor or other thing I just I wanted to get a whole bunch of people in an idea and we had Josh Bond come in who's uh, who's a, um, a director and artist and circus artist himself and he just oh, made us man with the iron neck man with the iron neck yeah co-writer and director of that and and he he made a suggestion that I he goes I feel like you should have some animation, and I was because I kind of get I was trying to look at shadow puppetry, but I I didn't have the experience and I wasn't really making it work. And he's like, let's animate things, and I was like, oh my god, 
Yes, animation. Let's do that. So we've got Studio Gilles, uh, you know, Jake Dzinski, a First Nations animator from Sydney, came on board. So there's this awesome animation. And also Studio Wirum, which is a First Nations film. So we have a bunch of filming aspects in this with the screens that we have. Um, this time around, we have two new performers. We have Glory to Daniel, um, who who um, was previously a Bangara dancer until February. Then she joined us for our national tour of silence that we just did. And she's now coming on because my wife, Tari, is not being in this work because she's due with our second child in January. And she thought, I danced with the first child. I'm just going to rest for the second. So <laughs> she stepped off and Glory's going to replace her for this season. And then we have Grayson is not coming back for this season, but we have the amazing Vicky Van Hoot yeah. joining us, the, the genius Radri director, dancer, choreographer, <laughs> Who you've worked with before. Who has been my mentor for the last... Uh, so actually my first year of dance studying at NASDA, all the way back in the beginning, she was given a year group to build her technique on and I was the year group she was given. This was 15 years ago. And I was the only one who went from the very first year to the end. And then, uh, yeah, employed me. She was my first major contract, major work with Longgrass. And then I did Le Festivities Le Brufier with her. She'd been my ongoing mentor for myself and Tari, um, especially as we went through making more shows. Where Dingo is my fifth major work that I've created. So she's been, had hands on across everything I've done in my career, pretty much, of my, of my works. And um, we just premiered my newest work at Brisbane Festival and went to Canada with it, Goromananya, which was my solo show which, um, quotation marks, was my um, swan song from performing. Because <laughs> um, so, you are now, we have to be clear, you are performing in Where Dingo. I am performing in Where Dingo. So that show is marking that uh, my next few shows that I'm, I'm dreaming up creating, I'm, fi- I'm going to step off the stage and start directing okay. from the outside. So I'll still be in everything I've been in in the past, but Goro Mananya was like this last big kind of here I am, one last Tom, full Tom. Um, there's a lot of other reasons why I'd end up being a solo. I don't like solos. I don't enjoy the idea of them. I think there's, there's issues with them that I, I have. But I did this and Vicky co-directed the work with me. I thought, let's, let's, let's not have you in a mentor or someone who's just checking in or this dramaturg. Let's come in and let's, let's do this together. So we co-directed the work and then, and then I was like, well, how about you come and perform for me? Because she always used to talk about how she's employed so many people and, and, and none of them have employed her. And um, I was like, well, come dance for me. Fantastic. I've, I've got a role. It's yeah. yours. Well, because I'm pretty sure that the first thing I ever saw you perform in was Long Grass, Vicky's work, at um, uh, the meat market. Yeah. Kind of, uh, and I, even then I just remember being struck by kind of uh, your groundedness, for example, kind of this uh, – I've seen plenty of dancers do, do floor work or – but there was something about watching you dance that I, I was – there was it felt like a palpable kind of this man is rooted to the earth in a way uh but also kind of you're a big fella but yeah. you move with power and grace as well so that struck me as well what's it like dancing in where dingo given that you have in theory done your swan song as a performer yeah no it's it's um like it's it's great i mean i you know that was long grass what are we looking at? Eleven years ago, and in that time, I've really, like I said, Where Dingo, well, Goromananya was number five, five or six. So Where Dingo was four or five, and oh, there's, there's too many. Ah, um, oh, that sounded like a weird flex. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, you know, I've I've really gone on and developed my movement language and my movement vocabulary, and the groundedness is really important for me um, uh, because it's that. You know, we come from the land and we return to the land. And so I've really been developing that more. So bringing that into Where Dingo and um, Glory now having like a a good 14-week tour under her belt of my technique and Benjen being on two shows of mine with the technique and Vicky being, I guess, was where my technique probably originally was seeded from her technique and and then making my own offshoot of it. So it's... You know, it's grounded. It's all connected to country. All my stuff is about being down. Like, there's no big jumps. I don't do partnering. I don't point my toes because my feet cramp. So I, that was probably one of my favorite things about starting a company and making my own works was I can make my own rules. <laughs> um, so, but it's all about down because even if we go off the off the ground, if we jump, you come back down. So it's all about the relationship. All the movement comes from our feet. So it's um it's exciting. You know, the remounting that we, we we're very fortunate to be remounting down here in Nam and at the Arts House because uh, we get to have the screens up and get to be in the space it's a much bigger space than where we premiered we're in a very tight prim- uh, in metro arts up in brisbane which is i do love that space but it's much 
it's it's more than double the size. So it's very interesting to go, okay, we've actually got some space now. Like I'm going to throw my arms around and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's really, and this is my most, um, like it's 50, 50 of dance and theater. There is a lot of, like being the support group and being storytelling. So I really worked a lot on crafting the characters and, and taking them on their character arcs and their journeys. I really loved kind of being able to piece the two together. So it's really there's there's a lot to follow on. Um, I think that there's there's little things that you might miss. There's a lot of things there's a lot of things on offer for you to grab it and to keep on the journey with us, which I'm really excited to share. Carol Project Where Dingo is on from the first to the fifth of November at Arts House at North Melbourne Town Hall uh, on the corner of Queensbury Street and Errol Street, North Melbourne. Shows are at seven thirty p.m. Wednesday to Saturday, five thirty p.m on Sunday runs for 50 minutes artshouse.com.au for details and if you are going to rock up you can dress up so uh, yeah. express your inner shapeshifter yeah. and come along to wear dingo Thomas it's been an absolute pleasure thank you no Bugle Bear thanks for having me absolute uh, delight to catch up again given that it's been a while Triple R on FM digital online via the app you're tuned to Smart Arts here on Triple R. And my next guest has just joined us in the studio. Daniel Hassett is a photographer who is mounting a, a special exhibition uh, which translates as life, uh, but in Ukrainian it's called Zhetya. Yep, that's right. That's right. I got it right. Hooray. Yes. I've been congratulations. Thank you. Well done. Uh, tell us a little bit about the exhibition. Uh, so this exhibition is on uh, this weekend in Melbourne, opening uh, tomorrow evening, uh, also running through Saturday and Sunday during the day. And this series follows uh, essentially 12 Ukrainian families or Ukrainian refugee families that are currently living in Australia. Um, and I've met them all and they've spoken to me about their experiences and uh, just trying to get their, their voices to be heard in a time where uh, we all have a bit of news fatigue and uh, people kind of lo- gradually lose interest in things that are going on in the world. So I'm just trying to allow these people to have a platform to share their stories. How important for you is it as a photographer to ensure that you are facilitating storytelling, both through images and accompanying text, rather than telling their stories for them? Oh, yeah, I think it's massively important. I think that uh, it's important to use their words, and and for me that was paramount, Um I think 10 of the ten of the 12 families that I spoke to, I spoke to in Ukrainian. I can kind of fumble through the language, but um, but they can all speak it fluently, obviously. And uh, so I could kind of follow along what they were saying, but I had to listen back, figure out which bits I wanted to use from my interview with them. And I was really, uh, really keen to make sure that the translations were 100% accurate and that I wasn't, you know, paraphrasing too much, which is obviously difficult between two languages. Um, but I think that we've got it perfect and to a really nice point, um, which is good. Yeah. Now, you're part of the uh, Ukrainian diaspora here in Melbourne. Yes, yes. Yeah. So this then must be a, a, a deeply personal exhibition for you as well, not just more than just an art project. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think growing up within the Ukrainian community in Melbourne, uh, I went to language school for most of my childhood. Uh, I think I was there for 11 or 12 years maybe before I finished up. Uh, Ukrainian church every Sunday, uh, extracurricular activities with Ukrainian dancing and Ukrainian scouts. Uh, so it was a lot of lot of Ukraine. Um, but yeah, I've, I, as the years have gone on, you kind of fall away a little bit. Uh, so for me, it's been a really nice way to kind of reconnect with the community and, and feel like I'm trying to use my my platform and my abilities to, to kind of uh, to do a right, to, to do something that's for a good cause and, um, yeah. How is the community feeling at the moment, whether new arrivals from Ukraine who have uh, sought refuge uh, because of the war there at the moment or the longer-term uh, people who may have been here for a generation or two? Clearly there, there must be deep distress and anger and hurt, but what is your overall sense of... Um, of, yeah, I guess just how the community feels. Uh, yeah, I think the community's yeah incredibly upset, incredibly angry, uh, justifiably so. Um, I guess the this conflict in a broader kind of in a broader kind of scale, many people uh, are of the opinion that it could have been avoided. Um, obviously, this war's been going on for 
Well, geez, it started in 2014 um, with the annexation of Crimea and it's continued since then and it's just the full-scale invasion that kicked off in 2022. And I think uh, a lot of people think that it's a, you know, an, an 18, 19, 20-month war, but it's actually been going on for, for, for much, much longer. Um, so, yeah, everybody's rightfully upset and uh, I think the Ukrainian community here has done so many incredible things that everybody, basically everybody I knew went, was attending a fundraiser, particularly initially, lots of fundraisers, lots of people took families in, um, you know, when they didn't have space to, they'll take another family in. And, um, and I think that that's really important uh, for the people that are coming over. And the people who are coming over then are the people who are, or some of the people who are featured in your exhibition. Yes, yes. So I, I photographed or met uh, five groups or families in Melbourne and then, oh, sorry, seven in Melbourne and then five up in Brisbane as well. Uh, so, yeah, so some of them have come out uh, on their own. Uh, obviously, uh, males over the age of 18 have had to stay. Um, so a lot of the families that are coming out are mother and children or elderly um, but a lot of people are coming out on their own, and for some people, you, uh, for some people, Australia is a place that they may have visited before, or they may have met somebody travelling many years earlier, and they might have crashed on their couch when they first arrived. They might have seen it as a, a bit of a safe haven, but some people just came because it's um, as far away as possible, really. Given that you're a member of the community, I take it it was easier to to gain us gain the the trust of your subjects uh absolutely that's um i i guess initially the project started uh i spoke to mum mum's very involved with the church in north melbourne and i said to her, oh there's this there's this series that i want to do but i'm not sure how if now's the right time or if it's um you know too much of a sensitive topic to kind of bring up a lot of a lot of pain um and she was really great and went to you know, she met some families at church and kind of gradually started speaking to them and saying, oh, look, my son's a photographer and he's doing this series, so um, would you be willing to be involved? And um, and and thankfully for me, uh, yeah, we got some people that were really excited to do it and were recommending other families. And, uh, yeah, hopefully I'm able to kind of do them a little bit of justice and hopefully they like the pictures. I think that's the most important thing for me, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the photos themselves are quite kind of naturalistic. You're kind of photographing people perhaps uh, with children kind of standing on a lawn, for example, or yes. a kind of a, um, uh, a portrait shot. So this is not uh, – there's no sense of affectation about no, the work. No, not at all. Um, being somebody who works in the commercial photography industry, I really wanted this to be a really loose, pared back, uh, just, just beautiful portraits and family pictures, uh, ideally at the place that they're living or in a park nearby where they kind of just clear their head. Or um, Yes, yeah, so I met some people at a park. Um, one family wanted to be photographed in the church in North Melbourne. Uh, a lot of people in their front lawns, backyards. Um, so lighting conditions and weather conditions were a bit iffy, particularly up in Brisbane in the middle of January. Uh, but... But, yeah, I wanted it to be as pared back as possible and, and very much a, a day in the life. You know, I didn't, I didn't bring any lighting equipment. I didn't bring anybody else with me to, to help, me, help me with stuff. I just kind of uh, – just me in a camera and me fumbling through the Ukrainian language as best as I could, really. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, makes a nice alternative to um, – I don't know. It, it brings a, a sense of, of the documentary to it, for example, and gets away from the artifice of the studio, which through lighting and sets and whatever it may be, kind of it can exaggerate the drama of a photo, for example. These are uh, direct, unadorned uh, people telling their own stories and, and looking directly at the camera as well. So for people who attend the exhibition uh, happening from the 27th until the 29th of October uh, in Brunswick East at 7 to 9 Brunswick Road, there's a real sense of kind of you are engaging directly with the people in these photos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted it to be as authentic as possible. Uh, a lot of these families welcomed me into their houses, uh, forced me to stay for tea and coffee and dinner, even when I, even if I had other plans. Um, so it was very sweet and they were all so lovely. And um, yeah, they kind of, I was, I was really taken aback by how, how accommodating and how, how friendly and excitable they were that I was there. And uh, yeah, it was very sweet. Well, 
I can imagine that in some ways because on you referred to news fatigue at the start of our conversation, yes. and I guess particularly with the voice referendum and the situation uh, with uh, Palestine, for example, uh, the war in Ukraine has perhaps fallen off the radar a little bit. So, to be for for these people to be able to say no, this is still something that deeply affects us, our families, our culture. Uh, this is still news, and it matters. We matter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, the last the last month or so has been pretty turbulent uh, for, for for everybody. I think uh, with everything that's been going on uh, in the Middle East, but also with the with the voice referendum. Uh, but even even prior to that, you know, there, there'd be days where I'd be I'd be reading my from my regular news outlets, and there wouldn't be an article on Ukraine for two or three days at some point. And there's so much happening, and there are so many people being killed, and um, while missiles, you know, strike apartment buildings at four o'clock in the morning while everyone's asleep, um, I think we, this far away, we, I guess we lose interest a lot quicker than a lot of other places. Um, so this was something that I really wanted to challenge, but that's, that element of it's only really come to me kind of as time's gone on. Yeah. And one of the things that you're also doing with the exhibition, Daniel, is fundraising. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we've got some tremendous fun, uh, some tremendous sponsors on board that have been really generous with their time and and and, and their money and their help, and uh, yeah, essentially all money raised, oh sorry, all proceeds from the show are going to an organisation that have been working in Ukraine since 2014, since Russia first annexed Crimea. Uh, they're called Voices of Children, and they work primarily in psychological psychological support for kids. Um, so they do all kinds of stuff, uh, art therapy, uh, they, uh, I guess they educate older people within the community as to how to, how to support these kids. Um, and I've found them to be one of the most transparent organizations that I've looked into. And, uh, I reached out to them just saying, Oh, Hey, I'm going to flick you some money in a bit. I'm not sure how much yet, but we'll see. Um, and they were really, really excited about the project and they really wanted to chat. So it's been really nice to have that dialogue with them. And I'm like, oh, don't worry about me. You know, you guys have got other stuff to do. Um, but yeah, so uh, essentially all drinks that are being sold at the event have been donated, uh, but they're being on sold and all of that money's gone to Voices of Children. Uh, You've got a zine for sale as well? Yes, yeah. Also, I've printed a a zine, so just a little photo booklet, uh, which has all 12 images with the stories in English and in Ukrainian, and uh, and all the proceeds of that is going to Voices of Children as well. And will the individual portraits themselves also be for sale? Uh, No, no, not at the moment. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with... With the port, uh, with the framed portraits, they might be going somewhere else after this. I'm not sure yet. Um, I was, con- yeah, it was. I was un- uncertain as to what to do with them, but I think um, it might be a bit of a roadshow for a little bit. Fantastic. We'll uh, we'll see we'll see how things go. Great. Well, uh, let us know, and we can certainly plug that on the airwaves. Thank as you. Well. Cheers. Uh, I'm talking with photographer Daniel Hassett about the exhibition Zjetja. Uh, which means life in Ukrainian. Uh, It is running from the 27th to the 29th of October. So uh, kicking off tomorrow night, drinks on sale, all proceeds from the bar go to supporting the charity Voices of Children, as you heard, as did the sales of uh, the zine that Daniel has created as well. So the exhibition is running from the 27th to the 29th of October uh, at 7 to 9 Brunswick Road in Brunswick East. You can check out more of Daniel's work at his website, www.danielhassett.com. Daniel, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having Uh, me. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. And I hope the exhibition is a huge success. Yes, hopefully. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Last night, I took a friend to see a work of contemporary dance. He'd never seen any contemporary dance before and I think he was curious but he was also slightly apprehensive and afterwards I said to him, I think I've ruined contemporary dance for life for you because I I took him to one of the best contemporary dance shows that has been staged in Melbourne uh, in the last year or two, if not longer. Uh, the show, I've talked about it on uh, here on Triple R a couple of times, is called Manifesto. This is its return season after it premiered as part of Rising last year 
at the Malthouse. Uh, it is created by Stephanie Lake Company, and I am joined in the studio by Stephanie Lake, who choreographed the work together with her partner in life and art, Robin Fox, who is the composer for the work, and last night played drums as well. Welcome both. <laughs> Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you both in, because... As I was just saying off air, or rather asking off air, I've interviewed you both plenty of times over the years about your careers, but I have never had you in the studio together. I know. This feel, feels really nice. Yeah. Feels yeah. Like, <laughs> like an oversight in some ways. I should have done it sooner. True. Yeah. True. So, um, Manifesto is a... Uh, when I first saw it at the Malthouse, for example, I was going, OK, I'm seeing a contemporary dance show in a theatre at a festival and sat there going, my God, pe- people are whooping and cheering like they're at a rock concert. <laughs> Last night there was raucous laughter for, uh, in the, from the crowd. There was joy. There was stomping and clapping. Mm. Uh, it's an incredibly exhilarating and exuberant show mm. due to the combination of what? So it's is it ten drummers on stage and ten dancers? It's nine and nine. nine. nine it's and as nine. many as we could fit. I would have <laughs> loved to have had ten. I would have loved to have had a hundred. Yeah, the, I think the initial concept was ten and ten. seemed nice and clean. But we literally couldn't fit that many on stage. So we, when we started to do the set design, we realised it's, it's going to be nine and nine. So we're at capacity. Okay. Capacity drums. And again... Having seen it uh, for a second time now, I loved the fact that the way it begins, half the audience flinch or scream because there's just this sudden percussive blow, short, sharp, sudden, and a responsive movement in the dancers as well. And I knew what was coming. So, So how do the two of you make a show like this? What comes first, the, the idea for the choreography or the idea for the score or... Do you develop collaboratively over a period? Oh, my gosh. It's so hard to disentangle, actually. Yeah. I think they are so braided together. Absolutely. And because we were conceptualising the piece actually when we were in lockdown pretty much, so it was Robin and I sitting out on the rocking chairs out the front of the house for hours and hours (laughs) talking about this work and imagining what we might do if we are ever able to get back in, in a studio. And so, yeah, by the time we were in the studio with the, with the cast, we were working simultaneously. It was really, mm. it was happening concurrently. There was music happening in one studio in the mornings and we were in another studio and then we'd smash together in the afternoons and, and try layering the ideas together and see what would happen and what the happy accidents were and, mm. and start playing and improvising and, and, and just trying all sorts of experiments. So, yeah, yeah is that your of, memory? Yeah, of there was lots of experiment. <laughs> but this, this one particularly, I think you're right, it was, it was conceptual before it was physical, mm. which is not always the case. And Steph works really somatically, obviously, with bodies. So the work comes together in this development period in the room full of people. I mean, there's only so much... There's only so far you can get with the adjectives beforehand, but I yeah. always <laughs> ask for adjectives. I'm saying, just give me some adjectives and I'll start making some music. But, uh, you know, that, that opening scene was something that we talked about, this idea mm. of this sort of counterintuitive unison. I wanted I, Musically, I wanted it to seem impossible. Like, how can they possibly coordinate like that, you know, in time? And then what it became, actually, in the sense of the work is just this real invitation into the work. It was There's a playfulness about it. So when that curtain comes up, oh, I shouldn't say too much. I'm no, the stop show. Oh my now, God. just in case. There might be people who haven't seen it. Yes, of course, of course. Um, Sorry, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll shut it's... up. But, 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 but it's an invitation. And the fact that people laugh at yeah. that moment, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation for people to enjoy themselves, actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, because the thing that fascinates me about the work is that it's deeply, richly artistic, but it's also enormously entertaining. Awesome. Uh, and... That is not necessarily something that I'm, sh- I'm sure some people would associate with contemporary mm. dance. That, um, in fact, when I first started attending works of contemporary dance, I remember some- there's, there's something on my old old blog which I haven't really updated for years, where I just went, I just, oh, I, I, such a dense art form, I can't understand it. It's <laughs> kind of like it's quite daunting actually, yes. and now it's like one of my favourite art forms. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I know what you mean, and and contemporary dance has really got that reputation for being. No, no, difficult or alienating or that inaccessible in some ways. But I've, I've just been so determined to to mess with that, and because I've I think dance is enormously 
entertaining and so rich and so actually incredibly accessible because we all have bodies. We all know what it is to move and stretch and twist and, and feel and collide. And, and, and then when you combine that with something so elemental like the music of drums, which is just primal and raw and it's got an overwhelming um, kind of energy to it, um, yeah, I'm really determined that anyone could walk in off the street with no prior knowledge of of contemporary dance as an art form and get something out of the show. And and I think that that's really been a mission of mine for the last few years in particular to 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 make it really to, to make the work enjoyable for anyone and for there to be layers there and that people can engage with if they want but at at the most basic level it's going to rock you. Yeah. You're going to feel something, and that's that's all I want. Well, you're certainly going to feel something with nine drummers playing kind of in unison on stage or or sharing a rhythm kind of around the room. Robin, many people would know you best as uh, a composer of electronic music. Mm-hmm. Had you ever written for, uh, for percussion this intensely before? Look, I'm a failed drummer, Richard, so it was, it's been my dream since childhood to play stadium drums. And, and, and I'm finally in my 50th year, I'm on stage as a drummer, and I've got to say it's ticking a lot Don't of boxes give up, for me. Kids. Don't yeah. give up, kids. Don't give up. Follow your dreams. Um, and so percussion's obviously been a huge part of my life since I was a kid. So I played heavy metal as a teenager and, and um, never really had the discipline to follow it through. But... Um, I also studied composition, so quite formally, so I studied orchestration and I've written for instruments in various forms uh, in my youth and, and the electronic music really only took over in my 20s. And so, yeah, I, I do have a connection to acoustic musical phenomena, uh, but when the opportunity came to actually compose music for nine drum kits, I've got to say it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a dream come true. <laughs> was, was, and, and, you know, there's lots of thinking that went into the process. I mean, the, the fact that they're identical kits is not just a, a, a set design element. It was something that was very important to me that, you know, percussion at its essence is just sound. You can hit anything. You can do anything. So, you, you know, a lot of contemporary percussion particularly is it's all about timbral variation. Like, so percussion can be anything. And so as a limiting factor, the idea that these are just four-piece standard jazz kits, basically. You've just got hi-hats, you've got a ride, a crash, and the toms, and that's it. And they're identical. So I wanted to start from that kind of limiting premise. And then, of course, the challenge from there is how do you compose an hour's worth of music with just drum kits that's not going to be really annoying because you can't just, you know, you can't just exercise that. Mm. You can't just go full power all the time. It would be completely ridiculous. Mm. So trying to achieve some kind of balance. I always talk about composition as a concertina of energy over time. So how do you organise that sort of concert, the push and pull of energy over time and timbral variation? And and I worked with just extraordinary musicians. I just put together a cast of my favourite drummers and, and... there you go. Magic happens. Because when I first saw the production uh, last year, I think there was a point about the 10 or 15 minute mark where I'm going, well, I'm enjoying this enormously, but is the the sound of just nine drums going to become a bit repetitive mm. after a while? Mm. And mm. at which point the music, the style changes and mm. The, mm. the patterning changes and so forth. So it, it's an enormously lively kind of score, mm. uh, which Steph must be a, a joy then to choreograph to and with. It's so amazing. It is it has been so amazing. But, yeah, I, we really... We we both had reservations about that, the it only being drums, and because I've worked with Robin's amazing electronic scores, and, and there's so much. I I feel like we're able to access real emotion in in the, the music, and so I was kind of worried about, even though I I knew it was going to be big and loud and exciting, but I thought, are we going to be able to ever get access any? any feeling with with just drums if we don't have access to melody or tone and um but i just think robin's done the most extraordinary job because the textures in there that the the way that we're able to go into interesting terrain and kind of it gets surreal sometimes and gets really delicate sometimes and um and then these incredibly energizing moments of of full power yeah for the dancers it was just an absolute riot the rehearsal process was insane because it was just imagine a a rehearsal room with nine drummers in there the dancers were just bouncing off the walls because it's so infectious you know that as soon as the drummers would would play 
together or lock into a groove or find find something they would we'd literally be screaming so it's not just the audience who's having that reaction we in the room were were feeling that during the process as well and it it really it it changed the way the dancers were moving as well there was this kind of explosive expansiveness in what they were doing choreographically it was so exciting because it's rare to 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 really push into new territory that's what we crave you know to to find something something fresh and and it really i felt like we right from day one we we felt like this is this feels exciting yeah I'm speaking with Stephanie Lake and Robin Fox about Manifesto, its return season at Art Centre Melbourne, on now uh, in the Playhouse, and I'll give all the dates and details and so forth shortly. But one of the things that struck me again uh, watching it last night, Steph, given the the power of the drums, Mm -hmm. the fact that there are moments of delicacy Mm -hmm. and fragility in the choreography and also beautiful moments of linked movement and Mm -hmm. arms and connection... Mm -hmm. uh, and then explosive moments of power as well. Mm. So that that kind of rich choreographic tone, uh, again, deeply striking. Oh, that's beautiful to hear. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm likewise, Robin said the drummers are phenomenal. The dancers are just incredible. And what they offered in the process, the the collaboration, the creativity, uh, their incredible artistry. I'm just, I'm so, so indebted to them because it's, it's, it's because of those 18 performers that the show is the success that it is. It, there's just no question of that. And the bond they have with each other and the amazing camaraderie and all of that, everything that you see on stage is real, that connection between them and the way they're bouncing off each other is so genuine. Um, but, yeah, those moments of delicacy and real emotional power that really that really comes from those incredible dancers and and what they're able to access yeah I think they're incredible I'd just like to echo that with the with the drummers too Mm. that it was an incredibly collaborative process in the composition as well and and the same goes like a lot of that a lot of the brilliance of that score comes from them and um and the energy mm. backstage, it, before the curtain goes up, there are the beautiful rituals that happen. The dancers all get together and there's a group hug and yeah. then we all look <laughs> at each other across the expanse of the set and the drummers put their drumsticks out and we have a little moment of like ET-style connection with drumsticks and everybody forms a bond. It's a very family uh, vibe back there. But, yeah, I just want to echo that about yeah. the drummers being a phenomenal uh, family to work with. Mm. Now, in terms of the evolution of the show, since its very first iteration, mm. it's played... Pretty much, what all the the major Australian festivals? All I think. the major festivals, yeah. We because it's the first time it was all the festivals have come together yeah, uh, on something through the the major festivals yes, initiative. Isn't yes, it? apparently it was a rather record breaking situation. Which it was my first time applying for this um, funding called the Major Festivals Initiative, where all of the the festivals basically have the option to to co commission a new work of scale and so I pitched the idea and it was just instantaneous support from all of the basically all of the major festivals who could afford to to present it and I because it was my first experience in that in that realm I I didn't know what to expect but people were saying oh my god that's phenomenal six festivals oh my god oh my god so really wonderful and and we just had the most phenomenal run it it prem- the world premiere was in adelaide festival 2022 and then we did we did all of the other festivals after that and it's been sold out everywhere and standing ovations every night and just an absolute thrill and we've also been in germany already so we've done we've had one international tour and that was the same response same same response from the audience whooping cheering standing ovation same thing thousand people in the audience and we've got lots more international touring coming up over the next years. We're booking into 2026, 2027. Fantastic. Yeah. Robin, you didn't play drums in the original season, did you? No, no, no. So I composed for a set of ninja drummers. <laughs> As I said, I consider myself a failed drummer. And, um, and I was always a res- – because we were coming out of COVID, I always thought, well, at a pinch – if something really bad happens, I could sit in. I would definitely be worst on ground. It was just a matter of how much. And I got into training 
and I and I just loved the process of getting back on a drum kit, and I, and I really thought, and, I, and I'm now playing drums better than I probably ever did as a youngster. And in that final section of the work, which I won't say anything about because I've done enough spoiler alerts, but <laughs> basically, just to let everybody know, in that final section, I'm a 50 year old person, but I feel 19 in that moment, mm. and I had bleeding fingers after last <laughs> night, and my God, am I having a good time up there? Everybody should have an endorphin fix like that at least once a month, and um, so I'm very happy to be drumming in the show but uh it's a, I, I liked being outside of it from a comp- compositional point of view being outside of it being able to work mm. you know outside the work is great and it was the, f- the first time that i got into the work i realized how awful it was to play for the musicians and i apologized to them <laughs> it's one of those things where i thought just do it just do it just do it and then i thought oh god that's it's terrible i'm so hard. sorry yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what have i made them do <laughs> And Steph, in terms of the the evolution of the work choreographically, I mm. I noticed a v- one or two very small tweaks and changes last night. I think from minor, yeah, yeah, it's it's essentially the same work. Of course, there are little there's a little bit of push and pull, and I we do a note session after every single show where we're tweaking things, where we're just. Um, finessing and I, I make sure we really keep it alive and fresh for the performers so so yeah they get lots of notes from me but essentially it's the same choreographically it's really the same the structure is identical most of the choreography is the same we have one new dancer this time um who's done a fantastic job learning the learning the work and stepping in um so yeah but it's 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 the same old good old show the show is called Manifesto. Its return season is on now at Art Centre Melbourne, having opened last night, and I believe the dates have been extended until the 5th of yes. November. Yes, yep, till next Sunday, yep. That's a good season for dance work. It's amazing, and especially in the Playhouse. Yeah. It's, it's so great and just goes to show, yeah. The Contemporary dance. dance is for everyone. And the dancers and the drummers are going to be bloody exhausted by the end of the season. <laughs> Blood, oh, bloody so and happy. exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. No, they, they were, we're very lucky. They love the show. They love each other. And so they, yeah, they relish every opportunity to do it. We're very lucky. Well, I certainly uh, reveled in the opportunity to see it again last night and to share that with a friend who was like, oh, wow, if this is what contemporary dance is, I think I'm going to like it. So, and as I said, I've ruined you for life. That is music to my ears. I love that. That's so uh, good. Manifesto runs for 60 minutes, no interval. It's in the Playhouse at Art Centre Melbourne. Yes, there are nine drummers, so it's a bit loud. So if you are very sensitive to noise, maybe headphones or... or kind of Yeah, earplugs. they give out earplugs if you need them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I recommend just embracing it. Yes. Um, uh, and the 6.30 performance this Saturday will be audio described. Yes, correct. Uh, and... There will also be a tactile tour at 5.30pm before that show. You can book and find out more information about Manifesto by going to artcentremelbourne.com.au. I highly, highly, highly recommend this show. Go book for the Stephanie Lake Company's Manifesto. Steph, Robin, it's been an absolute delight having you in together. Thank you so so much. much, What a lovely way to start the day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>